The reading is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land your, uh, in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Good evening, my name's Matt Banks. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the assistant ministers here. Let's, let's pray for God's help before we get to work. Heavenly Father, we want to be men and women who can say that you are the first in our hearts all the time, every day. We're a long way from that, Father. We are sorry. We ask that this evening, as you address us, as you confront us, as you visit us in your word, that you will go some small step in us to making us people who hold you first in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Well, good evening. This evening, this evening we start a new series. Uh, it's still in Exodus. But what we're going to be doing is working systematically over the summer through the Ten Commandments. And this evening we start with the first one, which is there. Keep your Bibles open. Uh, Verse 3, where God says, You shall have no other gods before me. It's page 78. You shall have no other gods before me. Why does God start there? Let me ask you this. Do you know who Sekhmet is? No? 
He was the Egyptian god of hunting. So if you wanted to, I don't know, what would Egyptians hunt? Camels? No, probably not. Whatever they wanted to hunt, if you wanted a good hunt, you'd you'd offer a sacrifice to Sekhmet. Uh, Or have you heard of, have you heard of Geb? He was the Egyptian god of the earth. So if you wanted your crop to produce an abundant harvest, what would you do? Well, you'd, you'd offer a sacrifice to him. Or Ra, the god of the sun. So if you're an Egyptian and you wanted sun on your bank holiday, you'd offer a, you'd offer a sacrifice to Ra, presumably. See, that was, that was the world the, the Israelites inhabited. Uh, a period of history that scholars call the, the ancient Near East. Societies worshipped what you call a pantheon of gods. Lots of different gods for every different thing of life. And so people in that, are surrounded by nations like that, God says to the Israelites, you are to be different. You are to have no other gods besides me. And look, I don't know, do you, do you think, how, how different do you think we are in 21st century London? Pantheon of sort of small g gods. I don't know what you think. I had a little bit of fun with this. So perhaps, perhaps the, the god and goddess of Nike and L'Oreal. So if you're, if you're anxious to hold on to your youthful good looks, or to get some youthful good looks, perhaps you, uh, perhaps you make offerings to them at the gym or, or at the makeup counter. Uh, or, or the, the god Bowden. That's a clothing brand. Okay. So if, so if you're, if you're, if you're thinking, well, I, I, uh, I don't think, um, I don't think the opposite sex is recognising quite how attractive I am. Perhaps your, perhaps your worship at the foot of Bowden gets some, gets some more clothes. Or the, the goddess Careerus. So if you're a little bit, um, if you're a little bit insecure and you think, oh, I, I, I really just want to, to know that I've, that I've made something of myself. So, so you give your time and your energy to the, the goddess of Korea, Careerus. <laughs> it's made up here. You know. uh, and the point is, in, in exactly the same way that God would have said to the Israelites, you are to be different, you shall have no other gods besides me, God is saying to us tonight, you are to be different, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's what we're going to be. That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Before we before we sort of get into it, just a little, a uh, couple of two caveats really. Uh, the first is this: as we're looking at the Ten Commandments over the summer, let's not make the mistake of just kind of ripping the Ten Commandments out of their context and treating them as if they were just a sort of a, a bland set of rules. Okay, you can't do that. I mean, the the words that that come before the first commandment verses 1 and 2, set these commandments in their context. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So the point is the rescue from Egypt has already happened. God is not saying keep enough of these commandments and then maybe I'll think about rescuing you. The rescue's already already happened. Rescue comes before rules. As in everything in the Christian life, God's grace precedes anything we do. So that's the first thing about the context. 
The rescue's already happened. They're not trying to earn the rescue. The second thing is that they're not, these, these are not arbitrary rules either. It's not like God sort of woke up one day and said, oh, yeah, I fancy a bit of no uh, adultery, a bit no murder. Oh. The, these rules, like so much of the book of Exodus, are God revealing what he is like. So as you look at these rules, God is telling us that he is the kind of God who loves life. Who loves the living. The kind of God who who loves families. Who loves marriage. He's revealing stuff about himself. And he's, and he's revealing what we're going to see today. That he is the kind of God who loves his people enough to draw them into relationship with him. See, because these are not, um, these are not impersonal rules. This is not like sort of exam regulations or, or the small print on your mortgage. These are, these are personal words from a God whose purpose, as we've seen in the whole book of Exodus, is to live with a people and draw them into relationship with himself. So that's the first caveat. Don't sort of rip them out of context. The second caveat is exactly how they are to apply to us. There's, there's lots that could be said here, but I suppose the most simple is this. The Ten Commandments are not what you'd exactly say the heart of the law is. Okay, The Ten Commandments are not the heart of the law. Love is the heart of the law. I mean, Jesus himself says that, doesn't he? When someone questions him, what are the greatest commandments? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law hangs on love. Love is the heart of the law. And the Ten Commandments, if you like, are a, a sort of an exposition of what love is. They give concrete value to love. So we can't just kind of go, oh, love, I think, I think love means... Well, love means, at the very least, the Ten Commandments. And obviously, we as Christians are called to love. That is the life Jesus calls us to. So for us, as we are, and by God's grace, seeking to follow Jesus in lives of love, these are concrete outworkings of what love is. And so that is how they apply to us. Okay, those two caveats out of the way. Let's get stuck into this first commandment. Verse 3, page, page 78. You shall have no other gods before me. And immediately, actually, as I was preparing this, I was like, what? I kind of can trip off the tongue, but there's something quite surprising about that. See, God he doesn't say, there are no other gods apart from me, which you might expect him to say. He says, you shall have no other gods apart from me. You see, that's odd, because in other parts of the Bible, say, I mean, if you're taking notes, Psalm 115, the Bible makes it crystal clear that there literally are no other gods apart from the God of the Bible. 
So why is it here and, and at other times actually in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and other places? God sort of seems to speak. He almost give, gives too much to these kind of small G gods who don't really exist. Why does he speak as if they have some kind of existence? We'll try and, we'll try and work through that answer under our first point, And that is the Lord is in a class all of his own. That's our first point. The Lord is in a class all of his own. You see, the Bible is realistic. Yes, it is crystal clear. In, in the ultimate sense, there are no other gods but the God of the Bible. They don't exist. But the reason the Bible does sometimes speak as if in a way, you know, you shall have no other gods apart from me, sort of speak in a way as they sort of exist, there's some sort of reality to them. The reason it does that is that because on, a, on the day-to-day level, and we, we just know this, don't we? On a day-to-day level, there are other things or people in life who in various ways sort of demonstrably do have power in life. And the Bible's just being realistic. So, for example, you know, does, does money have power? Well, well no, it, it doesn't. Not, it, not in and of itself. I mean, paper doesn't have, have, have power. Like, copper coins or whatever don't have power. Like, ones and zeros on some World Bank computer somewhere don't have power in and of themselves. God can, God can devalue a currency just like that. God can give and take away money just like that. Money doesn't have any power in and of itself. Of course not. But, on the other hand, on a day-to-day level... Yeah, money does have power, doesn't it? You can do stuff when you've got money. The temptation to accumulate more and more money drives people to do any sort of wickedness you could imagine. So that's what the Bible is saying about these kind of small g other gods. In an ultimate sense, no, they have no reality, but, but sort of on a day-to-day, day-to-day level, yeah, they, they, do, they do exert influence over us. The allure of worshipping them is strong. So God is not denying that their power in that sense. But you could say from one point of view, the whole book of Exodus is God's sort of one long treatise in God um, sort of denigrating these small g gods. The small g gods of the nations, of the Egyptian gods denigrating them before the Israelites and before us so that we would know and have confidence, we would be able to say, we have no other God before you. In other words, God is saying that you you put me up against any kind of small g God and I will show you that I am in a class of my own. And the, ways, the way that uh, the Lord does that in the book of Exodus, there's, there's two main ways, really. The first is in, is in creation. We'll see a bit more of that in the fourth commandment, but let me just quote a bit of it for you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So God says, look, put me up against any small g God. I'm the creator. I made everything. You wheel on, try and wheel on one of your small g gods. Did, did, did they make everything? Can they make thunder and clouds and lightning, like we saw at the end of the Ten Commandments, descend on Mount Sinai? No. 
In the book of Exodus, God is saying, I made everything and I can stage manage creation at will. So God shows he's in a class of his own because he says, look, I'm the creator. And specifically, he says, look, I can stage manage creation for the purpose of lovingly rescuing my people. That's the second way he shows that he's in a class of his own. Just flick back with me, would you, to Exodus 15. See, this is the, this is the song that is on the Israelite worship album that they recorded. And, um, verse 9. The enemy, that is, that is, uh, Egypt and, and her gods. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But now, as they're singing after the rescue through the Red Sea, verse 10, Moses says, but you, Lord, blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Here we go. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. So the point is, God shows, the Lord of Exodus shows he is in a class of his own because he's the Lord of creation and he's the Lord who rescues his people. Yes, there are other small g gods in this world, but which of those small g gods has ever created everything from nothing? Uh, none of them. Which of those small g gods has ever rescued a people through ten mighty plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, millions of people like that. Uh, None of them. Which small g-god has ever done what the story of Exodus is merely a signpost to, that is the deliverance and forgiveness of people from across the world of their sins and entry into the new heavens and the new earth? Uh, No small g-god has ever done that. The Lord is saying, you shall have no other gods before me because I am in a class all of my own. Because of that, our second point, he demands the exclusive allegiance of us, his people. He demands the exclusive allegiance of his people. See, because what's going on here is not primarily theology. Okay? He doesn't want to sort of just get some theological truth into the brains of the Israelites. As one uh, commentator puts it, the Lord is challenging them and us at the level of allegiance and relationship rather than at the level of theology. So he says, have no other gods besides me. Uh, and actually a little bit of a historical background will, will shed some sort of light on what the Lord is um, the Lord is commanding in that first commandment. See, in the, in the, the historical period that Exodus is set in, you used to get these things, um, Stephen Moore, who's stuttering like three ancient languages, will probably be able to tell you a bit more about this. But you used to get these things called suzerain treaties, okay? And they were treaties that were, were signed by, by the king 
and the people he, he'd conquered, his, his vassals, if you like. And what scholars have done is kind of compared the, the suzerain treaties that were signed back in the ancient Near East to the Ten Commandments. And actually you find that in terms of their, their structure and their style, they're, they're very similar. So this, this is a treaty between a powerful king and the people who follow him. And actually what they found is that the, um, all, the, all the, the various elements are there. So first the treaty would come in, first in the, tr- the, the treaty would come the name of the great king, then would come the historical prologue, then would come the stipulations. Oh, and look, that's exactly what the Ten Commandments are like. Uh, I am the Lord your God, it's my name, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, historical con- context, and, and the stipulations follow. And as in many of the, 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 the treaties of the time, the, the first line of the, of the stipulations is a line where, where the people assert uh, their complete loyalty and allegiance to their king. See, that, that is what is going on in this first commandment. As, that, as the hymn puts it, Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. That is what God is calling us to, a, com- a complete and exclusive allegiance to him. And it is a command. It's not like, you know, allegiance to your favorite brand of, I don't know, washing up liquid or cola or, or trainers or something like that. It's not, you don't get to choose where your allegiance lies. It is a command. Because in Exodus 34, verse 14, God says, do not worship Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Our God is jealous for our allegiance. I don't know about you, I read that and there's a little bit of a suspicion that kind of creeps into my mind. And you think, is he just like, is God just like the kind of uh, over the top jealous boyfriend who just won't let his girlfriend like go anywhere near another bloke or, or talk to them or even look at them? But to think that God is like that would be to forget what we saw in our first point. See, I mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but it seems to me that when we get jealous, often it's, it's because, um, let's be honest, I'm, we're insecure. Uh, and we need, we think we need that other person to sort of make us feel good about ourselves. That's, that's why we often get jealous. But this is the God who created everything. The God who created everything doesn't, doesn't need us to kind of satisfy his fragile ego. When God says he is jealous for our allegiance, that's because he knows that the very, very best way, the very happiest way for a human being to live is in relationship with him. The very best way for a human being to live is in exclusive allegiance to him. Because his desire throughout the whole book of Exodus has been, has been to bless. Just um, flick back to um, Exodus chapter 20. And a few verses later, chapter 20, verse 24 
Look, look what the Lord says. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Here it is. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. So yes, God does demand exclusive allegiance, but he does so as the one who creates, sustains, rescues and dwells with his people. He does so as the one who knows that we are happiest when we're living in relationship with him alone as Lord. Not not when we're kind of divided between the small g gods, offering a sacrifice here, offering a sacrifice there, hoping that they'll provide all that we need. Not, Not if our exclusive allegiance was to Allah or some sort of Mother Earth or something like that. Not if our exclusive allegiance was to some made-up faith like atheism or, or humanism. Exclusive allegiance to the God of the Bible. But look, the question remains, well, how are we to express this exclusive allegiance? Actually, there's, there are so many things. I mean, you could, you could preach a sermon a week for the next year trying to answer that question. There was... Um, some uh, old holy people, uh, it's the Westminster Longer Catechism if anyone was interested, but back in the 1660s, some, some um, uh, theologians, in trying to answer this question, they put it like this. So the question went, what are the duties required in the first commandment? I, how do we express our exclusive allegiance? And they said this, the duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honouring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole person, being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. Easy. You got that? Do you want me to go, those taking notes, shall I go through that again? No. There, there are, there, you know, there's so much we could say in terms of what that, that exclusive allegiance means. But the one I want to sort of alight on and, and dwell on is this, that, that, that final point on the sheet. We live this allegiance through thankful reliance. We live out this allegiance through thankful reliance. Now look, I'll be honest, why choose that one? Partly it's arbitrary. Partly it's because I think that actually the more, the more thankful our reliance on the Lord is, I think that's a kind of a gateway into many of these other things like worship, highly esteeming, obedience. But, but primarily, I mean, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this afterwards because, because I think that's where the sort of the weight in Exodus is. I think that through the story of Exodus, that is what the challenge is in terms of allegiance. Thankful for, thankful reliance. Because it seems to me that's precisely what the Israelites got wrong when they were grumbling in the desert and didn't think that God was going to feed them. They, 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 they had no thankful reliance. That's precisely what they get wrong a few chapters later when they make the golden calf. They, they forget to have thankful reliance on the Lord. And in terms of the festivals that they're called to keep, I think that is the emphasis, thankful reliance. So um, flick on again one last time with you to chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 14.
The Lord says, be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year, you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in that month, you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. One. Two. Celebrate the feast of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Three. Celebrate the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. You see, you see, you see how the Lord links turning from other gods to turning to him in celebrating these three festivals. Uh, and what are the festivals? Well, the first one, Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's, that's celebrating the Passover. That's remembering the Lord's deliverance of them. And secondly, celebrating the first fruits of the crops and like the beginning of the harvest and the ingathering at the end, the end of the harvest. The first one, thanking God for his, his rescue at the beginning of them as a nation. The second and third, thanking God for his continuing ongoing provision for them. And you think, hang on, those, those categories sound quite familiar. Yeah, they're the, they're the two categories where God clearly demonstrated that he is in a class of his own. He's the one who rescues and he's the creator who provides everything his people need. You see, by celebrating these festivals, the Israelites express their allegiance to the one who is in a class of his own. But of course, there's a sort of positive feedback loop, isn't it? If you're going to stop and express your thanks and your reliance if you're going to express your allegiance in that way, it's also going to strengthen and, and, and reinforce your allegiance. As they stop and give thanks, as they acknowledge their reliance, they're drawn further into thanks, further into reliance on the Lord. They're drawn deeper into gratitude and trust and love and obedience. They're drawn deeper into the greatest of all blessings, a conscious minute-by-minute appreciation and experience relationship with God and as they do that of course they're protected from the temptation to worship other gods and the same is true for us you know I joked a bit about it at the beginning but many of us will will we do of course we do we feel the allure we feel the feel the pull of those those small g gods many of us will will confess yes I, I trust Jesus for my salvation but I waver in terms of whether I think I can trust him for my financial security. So I am tempted to worship at the, at the foot of the bank balance. Yes, I trust Jesus for my salvation, but I waver whether he can sort of give me a sense of sort of self-worth. And so I worship at the foot of, or I give my time to, I give my energy to, uh, what, what my boss thinks of me or what my next annual review says. What do we need to do? Well, we need to stop, like the Israelites had to do with those three festivals, we need to stop and consciously express our thankful reliance on the Lord, remembering 
Remember what it says in, in the book of James, James chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And I think if, if we stopped and, it, uh, and consciously expressed our thankful reliance on the Lord, and it doesn't have to be much, maybe it's writing down three things uh, that you're thankful for but at the beginning of your lunch hour or when you get in from work at the end of the day or something like that. But if I did that, wouldn't, wouldn't that protect me from wanting to give my allegiance elsewhere? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you, 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 you know, you live like in sackcloth and ashes with, you know, zero in your bank balance. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you don't give a monkeys about work. But if you're expressing your allegiance day by day in thankful reliance, you're going to get the order right. And you're going to worship God and not have other small g gods beside him. And of course, just like the Israelites, to the extent that we acknowledge our thankful reliance on him, there will be that positive, positive feedback loop. We're drawn further into thankfulness, we're drawn further into love, further into obedience. And most importantly, minute by minute, we live, we enjoy, we're aware that by the death of Jesus, we live in relationship with the one who is in a class of his own. Let me pray. Oh Lord God, we worship you, we praise you. We extol your name as the one who is in a class of his own, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who rescued a people back then, the one who has rescued us and is rescuing millions and billions of people for that great final exodus when we walk into the new heavens and the new earth to the promised land. We praise you for who you are, Heavenly Father, and we ask that you will help us to be men and women who who day by day express our allegiance to you and you alone as we live day by day in thankful reliance on you for everything. Amen.